You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Kirsten Payton. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, June 5th, 2023. In today's feature report, Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin reports on the resignation of David Wolf Bender from his city council campaign. More in today's feature report. Restorative justice is parallel to and yet outside of the criminal justice system. We're defensive driving school for people who have committed minor crimes. That's Ben Wendell talking about how this local nonprofit uses restorative justice to find alternative solutions to conflict in Bloomington. Hear all about it later in the show on a new episode of Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. But first, your daily headlines. The Monroe County Election Board met on June 1st. Chief Deputy Clerk Tricia Martin shared that two candidates submitted late filing forms and asked the board to decide what should be done. You have two late filings, and they've both been cured. Uh, one of them was due on 417, and they brought, excuse me, it was due on 414, and they brought it in 417. This is a first-time offense. The second one is a political party. It was due on January the 18th, and they returned it on April 3rd. Again, this is a first-time offense. So we need to decide on what do you want to do with both of these. President of the board, Donovan Garlitz, suggested that both late filings be forgiven and both candidates given a warning in line with the new procedure regarding first offenses. According to our previously voted on procedures, I believe this is a warning for both. The board unanimously voted to approve the warning for the two late CFA4 filings. Next, board member David Henry asked for clarification on the Steinsville and Ellettsville polling locations. So in looking ahead to the calendar uh, for um, polling locations for Steinsville and Ellettsville, uh, we're just waiting on whether or not parties conduct ballot vacancy caucus if they're, those are the being contested, right? Martin responded. Well, back before the primary, we talked about this. So I did bring this, and it says, a resolution is not needed, but the board must consider this topic. State law says that the uncontested races do not to, need to be on the ballot. However, party chairs have requested that uncontested races be placed on the ballots in both the city of Bloomington and the town of Ellisville. So I'm assuming we're going to stay with that? Yeah, that, that's fair. And so Steinsville, though... Uh Steinsville doesn't have an election. Correct. Um, correct. Okay, that's what I was checking out, mostly. Steinsville. All right. Mm-hmm. Thanks for answering my question. You're welcome. The next Monroe County Election Board meeting will be held on July 6th. At the Monroe County Commissioners meeting on May 31st, commissioners read a proclamation in honor of Wear Orange Day, bringing awareness to gun violence in the U.S. This is a proclamation for Wear Orange Day. Whereas, on average, 120 Americans are killed each day with guns, 
and Americans are 25 times more likely to be killed with guns than people in other high-income countries. And in Indiana, which has some of the weakest gun laws in the country, firearms are the leading cause of death for children and teens. And gun suicide claims the lives of almost 24,000 people in the U.S. every year, and access to a gun increases the risk of death by suicide by three times. And according to Every Town for Gun Safety, there are an average of 1,086 gun deaths in Indiana every year. And support for the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens goes hand-in-hand with keeping guns away from people who with dangerous histories. And local law enforcement officers know their communities best and are the most familiar with local criminal activity and how to address it, and are best positioned to understand how to keep their citizens safe. Whereas in January 2013, Hadia Pendleton was tragically shot and killed at age 15. And on June 2nd, 2023, to recognize the 26th birthday of Hadia Pendleton, who was born June 2nd, 1997, people across the United States will recognize National Gun Violence Awareness Day and wear orange in tribute to Hadia Pendleton and other victims of gun violence and the loved ones of those victims. And the idea for a Gun Violence Awareness Day was inspired by a group of Hadia's friends who asked their classmates to commemorate her life by wearing orange. They chose this color because hunters wear orange to announce themselves to other hunters when out in the woods. And orange is a color that symbolizes the value of human life. And by wearing orange on June 2nd, 2023, Americans will raise awareness about gun violence and honor the lives of gun violence victims and survivors. Now, therefore, we, the Monroe County Board of Commissioners, proclaim June 2nd, 2023 as Wear Orange Day. Proclaim this 31st day of May 2023 by the Monroe County Board of Commissioners. Commissioner Penny Gibbons shared some additional information she found while she was researching the subject of gun violence. Um, as I was prepping for some of this, I also came across a lot of startling other numbers that are just very upsetting to me. Um, and I'd like to share with the public that as a member of Moms Demand Action, uh, I want to let people know that if you have a handgun and want a safety lock for it, if you contact the uh, us at the Board of Commissioners, we will put you in contact with Moms Demand Action to make a free gun safety lock available for that gun, for that handgun. Um, there are other things that we didn't put in this proclamation, but every month, roughly seven women are shot and killed by their partners, and two-thirds of women killed by an intimate partner are killed with a gun. Um, and while we read that statistics on suicide, about 24,000 people in the U.S. dying every year, that's 65 people a day all across the country. Black Americans are disproportionately impacted by gun violence. There are 10 times the gun homicides and 18 times the gun assault injuries, Black Americans as opposed to white Americans. And Although we've already talked about the number of Americans killed, which is about 40,000 people right now, twice as many are wounded every year. This is a sad state in our country, and we would like to work to change that. 
Next, Health Department Director Lori Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 and health department developments for the month of April. Um, So just a few updates for you this morning. In Monroe County, reported COVID cases, hospitalizations, and emergency room visits have all taken a large decrease as of May 23rd. Um, And I thought that I would take a moment to provide you with a few general updates on some of the work that has been completed within the health department. Um, These metrics reflect the work completed during the month of April. So for our vital records division, 380 birth certificates were issued, 655 death certificates were issued. In our general environmental health services, they completed five mosquito investigations, 25 pool inspections, 10 solid waste inspections, and four hours spent on animal bite reports. Our wastewater division responded to five sewage discharge complaints, uh, five miscellaneous complaints, and 19 follow-up complaints. Four real estate septic inspections were completed and three follow-up inspections. Employees also completed seven on-site evaluations. Our foods division completed 64 routine inspections, responded to seven complaints, completed five pre-opening inspections, and performed six plan reviews. Our public health preparedness coordinator attended 10 trainings and spent 66 hours on updating our response plans. Our population health and outreach spent a total of 135 hours on our harm reduction program and attended 15 meetings. Our disease intervention employees completed a total of 303 open cases And lastly, our Futures uh, Family Planning Clinic completed 24 annual exams and had a total of 41 patient visits for the month of April. During public comment, Monroe County resident Amani Manny spoke about Bloomington Speedway and the noise ordinance. Manny said that he was all right with the noise and the speedway should be allowed to continue past 11 p.m. Yeah, hi, I'm Ananya Manny, and I'm a resident of Monroe County. Um, and to be more specific, a resident of Southside, where I can actually hear the cars pretty clearly on the racetrack. I do not race, and I know that the noise is loud, yet I'm okay with the noise after 11 p.m. since it's, it is not a daily occurrence, but a few days, maybe 10 to 20 days out of 365. Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'm sure those questions will not be answered. Um, you know, but I would still like to ask these questions and I'm sure even the constituents you serve know the answer. Um, I'm not sure if any of the commissioners reached out or even the, any, any members from the board ever bother reaching out, asking or listening to your constituents who live there and are okay with the noise that's coming after 11 PM. Um, if the noise ordinance has exceptions, then why is it that Bloomington Speedway, which I'm sure is probably 100 years old, does not have one? Why was that not grandfathered in? Uh, why is this pick and choose policy applied here? I can agree that a few people probably might have issues with it, but imposing the feelings of a few on a majority of people who are okay with Bloomington Speedway going after 11 p.m. is something that's not right. I think we need to be a little more tolerant. 
Commissioner Penny Givens noted that they have heard from the public both support and opposition of the noise ordinance. I, I think a couple of things that the commenter had wrong was the 11 p.m. is different from everywhere else. It's, it, it was 10 p.m. in our noise ordinance for everything else. Once that noise ordinance was put into place, there was an agreement between the county and the, the speedway for that 11 p.m. Uh, time. So, you know, it's the 11 p.m. is nothing new. It's been there since the or, ordinance was established. Um, and so this is trying to, and what, what the commissioners did last week was allow the sheriff and alert the sheriff that, you know, he's the one who enforces uh, the noise ordinance. and at that time and that here are the rules because they are different than what it would be for the general public. So there has been that kind of compromise that occurred well before I was here. And I, I would echo that I live close enough to the racetrack that I can hear it and it doesn't bother me either. But I think that those rules that were established at that time are, are what was being discussed last week and not any new or change to those rules. Next, facilities and fleet manager Richard Kreider asked the board to approve three contracts. He explained that the contracts are to relocate the badge reader on the entrance of the Curry building. Thank you, Mr. Cockrell. And I will say that we have heard uh, from people who support and people who disagree with the ordinance. We have heard definitely from both sides on this issue. Givens commented that she was glad to have local businesses working on the project. This request is to approve the proposal submitted to relocate the badge reader and supporting hardware from the interior set of vestibule doors to the exterior set. Recording main, in progress. At the main entrance of the Curry building. Currently, the exterior entrance doors do not lock, which allow ac access to the vestibule at all hours of the day and night. This project will require work from three contractors. B Tech Fire and Security will install lock hardware and relocate the badge reader in the amount of $2,090. Elite Electric LLC will install an electrical receptacle in the amount of $200. Matrix Integration will run the network cable in the amount of $1,685 for a total project cost of $3,975. The commissioners approved the contracts. The next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on June 14th. In today's feature report, Dave Ashkins of the B-Square Bulletin reports on the resignation of David Wolfbender from his city council campaign. We turn to Ashkins for more. Bender resigns as nominee for Bloomington District 6 City Council. Dems will caucus to fill ballot. David Wolf Bender has withdrawn as the Democratic Party's District 6 City Council nominee in Bloomington's November 7th municipal election. Two weeks ago, on May 18th, the County Election Board had convened a hearing on Bender's disputed residency in District 6. The board voted to refer the matter to Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant to consider possible felony charges and to the Attorney General, Todd Rokita, on the question of his eligibility as a candidate. 
Since then, there has been no word on Bender's case from either the prosecutor or the attorney general. Given Bender's withdrawal, the question of his eligibility is now academic. Bender was unopposed in the primary. No Republican filed as a primary candidate. To place a Democrat on the ballot, the party will now convene a caucus of the five sitting precinct chairs of District 6, according to Monroe County Democratic Party Chair David Henry. The date of the caucus has not yet been determined, but the deadline for filling a ballot vacancy for either the Democrats or the Republicans is July 3rd. It was on Thursday afternoon when Bender filed the CAN 46 form, resigning his candidacy. That could mark a possible end to a saga that began three and a half months ago, on February 17th, when the Indiana Daily Student published an article that questioned whether Bender actually lived in District 6. The headline of that article, City Council Candidate David Wolf Bender is running in District 6. Residents say he doesn't live there. The county prosecutor could still decide to pursue charges over the filing of his candidacy paperwork. In simple terms, the accusation against Bender was that he filed documents stating he lived in a place where he knew he did not live. A key question, now moot, about Bender's eligibility as a candidate is whether a sublease signed on December 9, 2022, which has an occupancy starting on May 1, 2023, would meet a residency requirement involving intent that has to be satisfied on February 3, 2023. On the question of whether Bender believed the statements about his residency to be true when he made them, Bender said at the May 18th hearing that it was never his intent to violate state election law, that he did not believe that he had violated state election law, and that he believed he had declared his candidacy in accordance with the requirements of state statute. Bender echoed that basic position in a statement that he sent to the B-Square after submitting his paperwork to withdraw as the Democratic Party's nominee. Quote, I never did anything to try and violate any election statute, end quote, he wrote in the statement. Even though he believes his legal position is correct, Bender wrote, quote, Withdrawing is what is right for the residents of the 6th District. Allowing a new candidate to run in the general election will ensure our election in November is about nothing but the issues facing the 6th District, end quote. In his statement, Bender also expressed some uneasiness about the current relationships among elected Democrats in local government. He wrote, quote, I'm increasingly concerned about the lack of reasonable dialogue between our city and county governments. I fear fighting and factioning within the Democratic Party on our council, end quote. Bender also indicated a hope that his status as a student and the controversy surrounding his residency will not have a negative impact on student candidates in the future. He wrote, quote, I also hope this single incident does not undermine the chances of a student in the future winning an election in this city, end quote. Looking ahead to the caucus to fill the ballot vacancy, Bender wrote in his statement, quote, I want to make this explicitly clear. It is my fervent hope that the precinct chairs slate in a young, future-focused candidate who will work on behalf of all Bloomingtonians, end quote. It is only the precinct chairs of the district where there is a vacancy who participate in the vote on the nominee to replace Bender. 
already known as one intended candidate in the Democratic Party's caucus to fill the District 6 vacancy. Sidney Zulich, an Indiana University student, responded to a late Thursday afternoon text message from the B-Square saying she intends to stand as a candidate in the upcoming caucus. Zulich already filed the paperwork to establish a campaign committee as an independent candidate for Bloomington City Council District 6 and had already collected the nine signatures required for an independent candidate to appear on the ballot. But Zulich had not yet filed the declaration of her candidacy, so she can amend her campaign committee filing and declare herself a candidate in the Democratic Party's caucus. Zulich was visible at polling places on May 2nd, supporting Democrat Isa Kasari's campaign for an at-large city council seat. She also worked for Democrat Penny Giddens' campaign for a District 6 state house seat. But those efforts don't qualify her as a Democrat under state election law. She has so far voted in just one Democratic Party primary in Indiana. The automatic qualification would require participation in two primaries. That means Zulich will need a signature from party chair David Henry to run for the nomination in the upcoming caucus. Reached by the B-Square, Henry said, quote, I'm happy to sign her back in as a Democrat, end quote. Chances are good that if anyone else steps forward to stand as a candidate in the caucus, they will also be a student. District 6 is located in the center of Bloomington and includes a chunk of the university campus. Even the non-campus parts of the district are mostly populated by college students. It will be just five people who decide the Democratic Party's nomination for the District 6 City Council seat. As indicated by the Monroe County Democratic Party website, the six precincts making up District 6 with their precinct chairs are Bloomington 1, Nora West, Bloomington 3, Nicole Bolden, Bloomington 4, Jeff McKim, Bloomington 5, Vacant, Bloomington 18, Emma Schreiberg, and Bloomington 19, Henry Wolfla. According to Henry, as party chair, he would have had to appoint someone to fill the vacant precinct chairship at least 30 days before the ballot vacancy occurred in order for that precinct chair to participate in the caucus. That means it's down to the five sitting precinct chairs to make the choice. Two of the precinct chairs are recognizable elected officials. Monroe County Councilor Jeff McKim and Bloomington City Clerk Nicole Bolden. It's not a requirement that a precinct chair live in the district for which they are chair, because the party chair can appoint someone to a precinct chairship even if they don't live in the precinct. McKim doesn't live in the city of Bloomington. Bolden lives in Bloomington, but not in District 6. Based on the most current voter registration file, which was provided to the B-Square by Monroe County election staff, two other District 6 precinct chairs, Schreiberg and Wolfla, don't appear to live in District 6. That leaves just one current District 6 precinct chair who does live in District 6, Nora West. Ben Wendell from Community Justice and Mediation talks about how volunteers help this nonprofit employ restorative justice to find alternative solutions to conflict in Bloomington. This segment is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. 
You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing getconnected at bloomington.in.gov. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm Ben Wendell from CJAM, Community Justice and Mediation. When people are in conflict, whether it's at work, whether uh, it's uh, at church, whether it's uh, neighbors, it's someone who has some problem with what someone else is doing or has done, we try to work it out to uh, everyone's satisfaction. The other half of our mission is something called restorative justice. Restorative justice is parallel to and yet outside of the criminal justice system. So we uh, take care of people who have done minor crimes like shoplifting, uh, and uh, they go through a program that's very much like what you would go through uh, if you had a speeding ticket and they said, okay, you can either pay $300 or you can go to defensive driving school. We're defensive driving school for people who have committed minor crimes. And in the same way, our, our other program, um, which is called VORP, uh, Victim Offender Reconciliation Program, mainly kids who have committed low-level uh, felonies or, or misdemeanors. They've gotten in dust-ups in the schoolyard. They vandalized someone. Uh, maybe they, they stole the neighbor's car and went on a joyride. Uh, and then instead of uh, going through the court system, the probation department sends them to us where the people who did someone harm and the people who were harmed can ultimately sit down, talk to each other, and hopefully the person who harmed the other person can offer some sort of restitution and the person who is harmed can get some kind of closure. I retired uh, in 2013. I was a radiologist for, for my entire career before that in a very high stress sort of job. So I, I, I wanted a volunteer opportunity. I went to uh, Area 10 Agency on Aging who has a program called RSVP. So basically they're taking retired folks and helping them find um, a volunteer job that would suit their talents and, and availability and, and so on and so forth. So I went to RSVP, sat down with, with the person in charge. You know, she told me about CJAM, and I think that was 2014, and I've been there ever since. It's, it's been the perfect job for me, and uh, I'd recommend that someone else do it, but you can't have my job, so. <laughs> But there are other things at CJAM that you can do when we love our volunteers. Most of the people who work for CJAM end up being uh, mediators slash facilitators. We have a training program that's like about three weekends long, very intense, to train people how to mediate and facilitate. The mediators learn how to sit down with people and resolve their conflicts. The facilitators are the people who oversee our restorative justice programs. So most people would end up being facilitators or mediators. We also have people like me who work on the administrative side. Talk to us, we're, we're available, we'd love to have you. 
So to connect with, with CJAM, Community Justice Mediation, whether you want our services or whether you would like to help us with, with our mission, basically there's a couple ways. Uh, you can call, in which case you're going to talk to me and you're probably going to leave voicemail, and our number is 812-336-8677. So again, you can call CJAM to get our services or to volunteer at 812-336-8677. The other way, which is, is very easy, um, would be to go to our website, cjamcenter.org, C-J-A-M-C-E-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Again, I'm Ben Wendell from CJAM, Community Justice and Mediation, where our motto is healing harm from conflict and crime, and we're here to help you. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.